Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's Yoma class. Uh, this class is a um, it's going to be offered every Friday for five weeks, just to give a taste of Masechet Yoma, the tractate in the Mishnah, the first kind of codification of rabbinic law, from which we get. Uh, most of what we know about the observance of Yom Kippur, although as we said last week, the first seven chapters of Masechet Yoma deal not with the Yom Kippur that we observe, uh, but mostly the Yom Kippur that was observed in the temple and the specifics of the Kohen Gondol and his service in the Holy Place on that day. But still, it is something um, worthy of explanation. We began last week with a quick read of the first Mishnah Masechet Yoma, and then we were part of the way through a kind of a slower read of the text. So the quick read was, Shivat Yamim Kodam Yom Kippurim, seven days in front of, before Yom Kippur, Mafrishin Kohen Gadol Mi Beito. It's a plural verb, so they, some group of people, separate the Kohen Gadol from his house. And we discussed how his house is really a reference not only to his physical house, but to his wife, Lelishkat Al-Hadrin, to the chamber of, it's, it's translated here, of counselors. We're going to look deeper into that word today. They would set aside for him a stand-in Kohen, who was not yet a Kohen Gadol, um, to, to substitute for him Shema Ye'erab Psul, unless something, just in case something happened to disqualify him. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda said, Af isha We even set aside for him a separate wife. Why? Shema tamutishto. What if his wife dies while he's in that um, preparation for Yom Kippur, even on Yom Kippur? Shnemar, because it says, It says declaratively in Parshat Acharemot that one of the things he must uh, ask for atonement for is for himself and for his house. Beito, his house, zo ishto which is his wife. And notice how that implicitly suggests that in the second line of the Mishnah, that when it says that we separate the Kohen Gadol from his house, we are saying that we are separating him from his wife. Amrulo, they said back to Rabbi Yehuda, what are you crazy? Imkain, if that's the case, Sov. We'd have to set up a replacement for replacement and a replacement for replacement for replacement. So he suggests that there's no reason to set aside a secondary wife. Okay, I want to look at that word palhedrin with you for a second. So now I'm going to share... Uh, a different screen. Um, look at, is that being shared right now? You're seeing the, you're seeing the, yes. okay. So this is um, the Jastro dictionary of the Talmud. In some ways it still is to me one of the most remarkable Jewish books ever written. Um, worked on for several decades, um, completed in the 1920s, I believe. And it, it, it basically is a dictionary of every single word and root that appears in all of rabbinic literature, in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the Midrash, in the Targums, in the Aramaic translations of the, um, of, the, uh, of, of, the, of the Torah and the Tanakh, and in an era, obviously, before uh, online editing. And the amount of information that Professor Marcus Joshua had in his mind was able to bring together this organized is unbelievable. If you look at the bottom right of the page, um, if you look up palhedrin in the Jastro, it sends you the word parhedrin. There are a lot of uh, Hebrew-Aramaic words that were borrowed from the Greek, and once they got borrowed, they got bastardized a little bit. So the way they appear in some texts is not the original. And you'll see here, I cannot read the Greek itself. I don't read Greek letters. But 
he, he translates parhadrin as assessors or counselors. And he, have, he actually gives us our text. And when I was in yeshiva, this was called a jastro jackpot. When you looked up a word in jastro to find out what it meant, and the example that jastro gave to help you understand what that word was, was the very text you were studying, right? And he gives us that, um, that uh, language, lilishkat parhedrin, to the counselor's cell, name of an apartment in the temple precincts. So we come out of that for a second and go back to the other one. That um, they were taking him to this place called the, it's written as Palhedrin here, it's Parhedrin in the, um, in the, in the, probably in the original. And what was it? For that, we should look at a commentary below on the Bartanura. Okay, so the Bartanura, Rabbi Avaja Bartanura, uh, who wrote one of the classic commentaries on the Mishnah and still studied today, an Italian commentator from the mid, uh, Middle Ages. Look what he says on Lilishkat Palhedrin, because it says something interesting about what um, religious leadership was like then, and we can ask a question as to what extent it has changed, or it hasn't. Kikidei HaMelech Nikraim Palhedrin. Um, advisors of the king are called Palhedrin. So the first thing he says is this word is not at the core, a spiritual word. It's not at the core, a temple kind of a word. It's a palace kind of a word, right? So there was apparently a room near the Holy of Holies where the Kohen Gadol would sleep before Yom Kippur, and it's taken from a word that has nothing to do with temple worship. It has to do with palace coterie, <clears throat> and because the series of high priests that served during the second temple after one particularly well-known and well-regarded high priest called Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Righteous, they would pay. They would pay money in order to serve in that post. We might have a romantic image that for the centuries that the temple stood, that no one was more beyond reproach than the high priest, right? A descendant not only of the Levi tribe and not only of Aaron, but um, and, and well-regarded enough by his community or his colleagues that he would serve as the high priest of that generation. Apparently, according to the Bartanura, built into what this word means is that we have a history of Kohanim Dolim, high priests, who would bribe officials to get into the post. It was considered to be a posh job. Because they were not good people. They were not. They were evil. The high priest who would serve in that role, who was going into the Kohen, to the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur, to beg atonement for himself and for his house slash wife and for all the people of Israel. Generations of them were Rishayim. They would not complete their terms. Right? So these were short-term high priests because their evilness was made apparent while they were serving. Um, they would switch every 12 months. Like like advisors to the king. There's some sense that in the ancient world, you didn't spend very long as an advisor to a king. Either you fell out of grace with the king or it was, it was considered a, a short-term post no matter what. 
Shehemelech machlifan koshana, the king would switch his advisors every year. Lechach, therefore, nikrat lishkazo, this chamber in which the high priest would sleep, was called cynically lishkat palhedrin, the chamber of the king advisors, the chamber of the counselors, right? Because the the idea was that for the for the generations in which that that particular high priest was serving, those high priests were serving, the rotation of high priests was similar to the rotation of counselors to the king. They come in, they come out, and uh, and therefore the place in which they would prepare for the holiest day of the year would be called by this rather cynical title. I see that Norm Green raises hand. Norm, do, uh, you can unmute yourself. Um, I wonder if this is by Bartendora's sort of a way of castigating the Sadducees in the temple service generally, because it seems rather harsh to think that year after year after year, they were selecting and selling the high priesthood to these terrible people, all of whom would proceed to die within a year. It just seems rather an extreme thing to say and very, you know, un- makes one very cynical and unappreciative of the temple service altogether. Right. I think you're right, Norm. I think the cynicism doesn't extend from Bartanura per se. It extends from the Mishnah, right? So if, if you want to take an, an, a, a, both an overly simple but probably not that inaccurate understanding of the rabbinic take on the priestly class, right? there are plenty of, um, of diatribes against the, the wickedness of the, the wickedness of the holy temple and the wickedness of the leadership there. There are, in fact, there are some really painful stories in Masachat Yom and the Talmud about how um, not only money hungry, but bloodthirsty the priestly class had become. And it's very possible to read a lot of that material as an intentional polemic against the priestly class as the rabbinic class was emerging from them, right? For hundreds of years, authority in the Jewish tradition emerged from birthright whom you were born to, right? It's the extension of the Genesis model where people are vying for um, spotlight based on the order of their birth and to whom they were birthed, to whom they were, to whom they were born. That's the Kohanic model, right? The rabbinic model is that you gain your authority, not by who your parents were, but what you've studied, whom you know, maybe who your spiritual parents were, what teachers taught you, right? So, um, is it the case that every author that we come across in the Mishnah individually had a negative attitude towards the Kahuna? No, but this, these texts are emerging in a convulsive time where the temple structure is literally falling apart and then is going to be destroyed. The rabbis are taking it upon themselves to rebuild all of Jewish society in those embers, and they harbor some cynical views towards how their spiritual predecessors who had been in charge, the Sadducees and the priests, um, handled authority. So I think you're right. I think Bartonura is not kind of creating that in the 15th century. I think he's actually accurate in, in terms of the origin of the word um, palhedrin slash parhedrin. Um, okay, so I wanted to go back a little bit and talk about um, Bartonura's understanding of why there's even this notion of a seven-day period that the Kohen Gadol would have to recluse himself before uh, Yom Kippur, right? So that's how the Mishnah began. That's how the tractate began. The tractate begins with seven days before Yom Kippur, right? So why? And that really begins a day after Rosh Hashanah. So I want to do two things with you quickly. Look at this verse from Bayika chapter 8. 
dealing with not Yom Kippur. This is not from Parshat Acharemot. I think it's from Parshat Sav. It might be Shmini, but I think it's Tzav's. Um, dealing with the, the, the ceremony inaugurating the first class, the first cohort of priests who would serve in the Mishkan, in the desert, not the temple in Jerusalem. This is still Torah. So we have this verse. Umi petach from the entrance of the Ohel Me'oe, from the tent of meeting, lo u shivat yamim, they, this class of inaugural, inaugural priests, would not leave for seven days, ad yom melot yimei meluechem, until the, the, you complete the days of your, the root here is malay full, it's translated as ordination, there was this sense of like a, a, a preparatory set of days, um, uh, that the that the priests in training would go through before they'd be formally brought in and they're and fill or fulfilling their roles as high priests. Because it's going to take seven days to prepare you. Just as God has uh, done today. So it's kind of a that, that verse thirty four seems to be redundant. Just as uh, everything is. Just as what's been done today, God has commanded that it be done to bring you expiation, atonement. Okay. So Bartanura, same commentator, on this line of the Mishnah, not on our verse, but I wanted you to have the verse in your mind. Mafrishin Kohen Gadol. They would separate the high priest. Shakol avodot yomakipurim. All of the um, sacrifices and worship services of Yom Kippur. Ein kashrut elabo. It's got to be him. He's the one who has to do it. It's only kosher that happens through him. Shana'amar, Gabay Yom Kippurim, as it says regarding Yom Kippur from Parshat Achremot, Vayikra chapter 16, verse 32, Bechiper HaKohen Asher Yimshach Oto, that who's doing this atonement service? The Kohen, who is going to have been anointed. The, the One of the ways of referring to the Kohen Gadol is not only Kohen Gadol, but Kohen the, the, the anointed one, the one, it's the same root as Mashiach. The hafrashazo, and this separation, nafkalan, we learn it from, midichtiv, from what it says, shivat yimei from the seven days of the inaugural ordination ceremony, from the verse that we looked at before, the eighth chapter, Bayikra. petach God said to the student priest, do not leave this tent of meeting for seven days. And it said right after that, I brought you that verse also, just as God has done today, God commanded to do in order to bring atonement for yourselves. And somewhere else in halachic midrash, the rabbis learned out, interpreted that the word, this should be really in quotations, la'asot, from that second half of the second verse, to do. Ze ma'ase para. This is the action of the para aduma, the, uh, the, the red heifer whose um, ashes would be mixed in some admixture to bring uh, cleansing to someone who had, had contact with the, with, with the deceased, meaning that there was also a seven-day period um, leading up to that uh, ritual. And this should also be in quotes, per alechem, the two words at the end of the verse having nothing to do with Yom Kippur, has to do with the ordination ceremony, but uh, the Torah, you know, hears evocative words in one verse and associates it with 
with other words, at least that's the Midrashic way of wielding Torah verses, since it said in the verse regarding the ordination ceremony, lechaper alechem, to bring atonement upon you, ze ma'aseh yom hakipurim. This must be referring to the ritual of Yom Kippur. Shehakohen hasoref atapara, the kohen who would burn the red heifer in order to prepare the ritual. Vehakohen haoved ba'yom kippurim, and the priest that would serve on Yom Kippur, shnehem, according to this midrashic readout, both of them tiunim hafrasha, they both require separation mibetam from their houses. Read houses as also spouses. Shivatimim for seven days. Just as the first priest and high priest required separation on the original moment of ordination. So that fleshes out a little bit um, the the text, which 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 if we just read the text raw, it gives us information, but not a whole lot of depth. Now we have a little bit more depth, right? That the moment of Yom Kippur in the rabbinic mind is uh, not a standalone moment. It's a redux of the original moment in which the concept of the priesthood was formed in the book of Leviticus, right? So the book of Leviticus chapter 8 talks about the forming of the pre- priesthood. By chapter 16, we're talking about Yom Kippur ceremony, and the Midrash connects those two together so that the seven-day waiting period to become a priest gets recapitulated by the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur. We've learned that the rabbinic, I mean, this is the first Mishnah of the tractate dealing with the holiest day of the year. And the first Mishnah in that tractate is already, at least in some ways, um, looking askance on the very person who's going to be the subject of the next seven chapters of Masech and Yomah. Right, so it's not until the eighth chapter of Masechet Yoma that we kind of get to a description of the holiday that we understand, and and uh, it's not just as Norm said that there was um, there was there was some some cynicism on behalf of the rabbinic class vis-a-vis the Sadducee class. The rabbinic class is going to devote seven chapters to this ritual, but it starts it off by saying, "Don't be that impressed by these folks. Don't be that impressed by these folks." How we um, insert that into our understanding of Yom Kippur, uh, particularly when we get to the Avodah service and we try to kind of enter into the pomp and the circumstance and the, and the, and the, and the smoke and the intensity and the notion that the people were outside the, uh, the Holy of Holies waiting for an answer from the, from the Kohen Gadol. There are many versions of that movie, right? There's the version of the movie that the person inside the Holy of Holies is the most beloved and honored person in the generation and there are versions of the movie which have played out in religious settings and in political settings and in communal settings from time immemorial till now where the person who is the focus and um, and has the spotlight on him or her for doing the most important deed of that society is one that is not necessarily uh, having gained the proper respect and therefore may not be the most appropriate person to do that, that particular act. I'm not bringing this up to you for you to, you know, you know, to, for you to, to look askance upon the, the, the rabbis of your community in terms of how we officiate Yom Kippur, but to recognize that for thousands of years, there has been, um, both, both the import of, of spiritual leadership at the head of the community performing rituals and acts that the community was not necessarily fully educated to do. And 
there was a rabbinic revolt against that to try to democratize religious experience because there was some concern about what happened when so much power got concentrated in one person. And then we can say on that, that the rabbis of the Talmud also fell victim to some of that, um, of, 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 of those traps. And there's plenty of material in rabbinic literature about one rabbi calling out another rabbi for acting too priestly. So we'll pause there. Um, I was hoping we we're going to start um, another Mishnah today. Next week, I'll just give you a heads up. We're going to jump to Mishnah one, uh, chapter one, Mishnah three, um, and talk about what the priest would spend his time doing before Yom Kippur itself. And I think I'll do one more Mishnah um, from um, from this early material, and then I'll do a couple of Mishnayot from chapter eight, which actually talk about the holiday as we know it. So that's the class for today. Uh, Michael, any questions? Yes. Uh, it seems that a separation of seven days uh, is has been used in other contexts before a momentous event, and I'm thinking about the separation of a chatan and kala before the wedding. Mm. And in fact, there, the last day of that is a day of fasting, almost like Yom, like Yom Kippur. It seems to be some kind of relation. I don't know if there is anything conscious like that. In rabbinic literature, one of the words or nicknames for a wedding is a Yom Kippur katan. It's called a miniature wedding day, right? The groom wears a kittel. There's fasting. The bride and groom, particularly if they're getting married, um, if, 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 you, if you get married in the afternoon and you have mincha before the wedding, which happens in religious communities, the bride and the groom say the version of the mincha that we say, Erev Yom Kippur, with the full list of al-chaits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are many associations. We, 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 we think of a wedding day as joyful, and we think of, a, of, of Yom Kippur as solemn, but there's actually a lot of solemnity to a wedding day, and there's also a lot of joy um, on Yom Kippur, which we talk about sometimes at the Avodah service in the sanctuary when we end with Mare Kohen, that, that wonderful poem about what the Kohen looked like when it came out of the Holy of Holies. And we sing it to a kind of a, a spirited tune because it was a celebration. He did it, right? Well, all the cynicism aside, there was a lot of writing in the hearts and minds of the, of the, of the Jewish people on what the high priest was going to be able to accomplish in, in the chamber. Um, so, yes, I do think there are some many associations there. Uh, let me release you to your days. Uh, Yom Tov, Shabbat Shalom, and see you hopefully soon and frequently. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.